AJT readers, this is Josh Levitsky, and this is your July 2021 AJT Highlights podcast. As always, joined by Roz Manon from University of Nebraska. And today we have a guest. Um, this is a new uh, slate of our editorial fellows and uh, Mike Fruscioni, from, who's a transplant surgery fellow from Mass General Hospital, is going to be joining us today to do uh, to review some articles. Uh, I'd like to welcome both of you. Happy uh, July. And um, as always, let me go down the list. We've got a bunch this month. It was a pretty heavy uh, month for papers in AJT and Editor's Choice papers. So Mike is going to review the first paper, which is uh, entitled Results of a Data-Driven Performance Improvement Initiative in Organ Donation by, by Doby at all and there's an editorial that accompanies that then Roz will move into two papers in heart kidney transplantation the first being consensus conference on heart kidney transplantation uh, by john kabashigawa and the group and um, then there's a paper entitled need for improvements in simultaneous heart kidney allocation the limitation of pre-transplant glomerular filtration rate by shaw at all which will go along with the consensus conference discussion. And then Raz will do, uh, will review a paper from Calamain et al., which is entitled Revisiting the Changes in the Band Classification for Antibody-Mediated Rejection After Kidney Transplantation um, with another pair to editorial. And then we may be going quite long in time, and so I'm going to just summarize two briefly two COVID-19 papers at the end. The first entitled inpatient inpatient COVID-19 outcomes in solid organ transplant recipients compared to non-solid organ transplant patients, a retrospective cohort by Robin Avery uh, and the group at Hopkins. And uh, finally, COVID-19 mortality among kidney transplant candidates is strongly associated with social determinants of health by Jesse Scholl and his group. So why don't we uh, get started, Mike, if you want to review, begin reviewing the first uh, paper. Thanks for joining. Thank you. And uh, I want to thank the ASTS and AJT for giving me this opportunity to serve an associate editor for the year going forward. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I've been listening to it from the beginning of my fellowship. So it's uh, it's finally nice to work with uh, Dr. Levitsky and Dr. Manon. So let me begin. So this is a paper entitled Results of a Data-Driven Performance Improvement Initiative in Organ Donation by Dobie et al. In terms of background, there's a lack of transparency and objectivity across OPOs. And in order to have reliable metrics for performance comparison, um, CMS proposed a new methodology based on detailed mortality records. So this metric includes um, codes that identify persons dying of age, uh, cause, and location-consistent death. Um, this metric is called CALC, C-A-L-C. So the authors use this uh, metric and they targeted an underperforming OPO in Indiana. And they integrated this CALP metric uh, to affect a quality improvement initiative to help maximize uh, yield and resource allocation. So my overall take on this manuscript, it really serves as an excellent example of how to use data to identify areas for improvement, for an organization to introspectively determine where opportunities exist, formulate changes, obtain buy-in from within, and then actually execute. So the efforts of the Indiana OPO are real exemplary of affecting process change and 
really as a result of this investment, the donor pools expanded and more opportunities for transplant exist. So the authors examined data over about five years and they focused on donor age, race, and cause of death coupled with this detailed mortality database. The authors further distilled uh, data by age, race, and ethnicity, and they compare the OPO's performance to other OPOs nationally. And in reviewing this calc data, the OPO engaged in a multidisciplinary discussion to identify these key practice changes. And the areas of focus included both referral evaluation and referral response. So in terms of referral evaluation, the process changes that they executed was to extend follow-up times to monitor for clinical decompensation. They expanded the inclusion criteria to include brain death donors up to age 80 and DCD donors up to age 70. In terms of referral response, um, the OPO triage referrals based on acuity to improve response times. They also redefined the roles of certain members of their staff. They enlisted a full-time on-site coordinator at high donor activity hospitals, and they increased their on-site presence to really demonstrate to the hospital of their commitment investment in potential donors. So the authors prepared some projections for the 2019-2020 uh, period. They used standard two-tailed t-tests to discriminate between projected and observed data, and they also assessed the impact of COVID-19, which unfortunately happened right smack in the middle of their quality, um, their post-quality initiative period. So although the observation period is quite limited, the initial results are impressive. Uh, for the five months, for example, uh, after the QI period and before COVID, donor recoveries and transplants were 59 and 34% higher than projected. The authors highlight these productivity improvements through several figures. Overall, the most substantial impact was in the donor cohort greater than 80 years of age, which for the Indiana OPO represented approximately 74% of the potential uh, donor referral pool. And this percentage is pretty consistent with that of other OPOs across the United States. The authors felt that the CALP data allowed the Indiana OPO to effectively benchmark uh, donor conversion, and it really opened up a dialogue for this QI plan to go into effect. The authors also commented that, consistent with CMS's goals, that the CALP data served as a better comparison tool across OPOs for both regulatory and quality improvement applications. So my observations in, in reading this manuscript, I had sort of a couple. And my first question was about the fraction of discards. So by expanding this uh, brain death donor criteria up to 80 and the DCD criteria up to age 70, the fraction of discards was higher in the post-intervention period. Now, could this be attributable to the OPO's initiatives or is it really a function of a transplant center's aggressiveness in evaluating uh, these potential donors. I also question as to whether there may be a, uh, an element of observer bias in this study, meaning that you speak to your organization, you speak to your staff members, they go out, they're all gung-ho, they affect this quality improvement initiative, and it becomes a very self-fulfilling prophecy in the near term. So my question is, you know, is this a sustainable way of reevaluating your program? Can the Indiana OPO maintain their improved ranking 
based on this calc metric. In addition, I looked at this editorial um, by O'Connor and Glazier, and I really, really enjoyed reading this because I think it takes the paper by Dobie to really the next level. And O'Connor and Glazier remark that it's not just about identifying and recovering deceased donor organs, but increasing utilization through better offer acceptance and transplantation. They mentioned that those waiting for a kidney transplant received a median of 16 organ offers, which were declined by their home program. So their challenge was, you know, to really realize the potential for increase in organ transplantation, the transplant community as a whole needs to reevaluate and improve offer acceptance practices. And they recommend creating an operational synergy between OPOs and transplant programs. So overall, I think this paper sets the tone for better performance measurement, and in conjunction with this editorial, really challenges the transplant community to collaborate between the OPO, between the hospital, and the transplant center. Mike, that was great. A question for you is how adoptable do you think this uh, quality improvement initiative is outside of this state or region? Do you think it would work um, where you're at in Massachusetts um, or other places? Is, you know, how do you, what do you think about that? I do think it's completely applicable. Actually, O'Connor and Glazier mentioned that this performance improvement initiative is nothing new. Um, it's been effective at multiple other OPOs. And I think in, within any organization over time, there are definitely areas of improvement, how we can become more efficient um, and better in terms of liaising with our donor hospitals and our staff. I, th I thought the uh, editorial was really quite provo thought-provoking because they you know, really highlight just the things you said, but also... You know, there's many pieces to this OPO puzzle. And, and, you know, one is it sounds like this poor OPO was like really struggling. And having come from a center that had, a, had a, an OPO in our, in our DSA that had struggled over the past, you know, having these on-site coordinators at these very busy hospitals is, is really crucial. But you can get so many organs, it's you got to use the organs. And I think, you know, the field is undergoing a, a renaissance in terms of these metrics. I think CMS is involved. There'll be more coming out about, you know, appropriate metrics and, and how those and, and risk assessment um, and how we, you know, feel and how we actually have to work through knowing the kind of donor and having better predictability tools of the outcome. I, I, I notice it doesn't mention anything about liver, Josh. And um, I think the presumption is kidney, but I guess this is all organs. Or did they mention anything about the other organs? No, it was just actually, you know, a very overall yield. Okay. Okay. Well, liver always comes second, right? Kidney. <laughs> <laughs> it always seems. I don't know. An old liver. We'll see. What the heck? <laughs> in a world, in a future world where liver is first, we'll, we'll see if that ever happens. Okay. All right, Roz. So, um, well, great job, Mike. Uh, yeah, that was, that. that was, that was a challenging paper, but uh, I think really, uh, important and just shows what you can do with a, a quality initiative and really advance something in transplantation. Okay. So Roz, heart kidney. Yeah. So, uh, so um, let's buzz through these two. Um, so I'll be talking about the Kabashigawa consensus conference on heart kidney transplantation. 
So as many of you may know that simultaneous heart kidneys are increasing the number representative to the overall number of heart transplants. And I guess in 2019, they were about 6% of all hearts that were transplanted. But there were a lot of issues in this space. And I think we struggled with the combined, the simultaneous liver kidney. So this is an opportunity. This was a great opportunity to study the issues. And those include the benefit or the incremental benefit of getting a kidney, which I think is sometimes difficult to assess candidate selection and there's such center to center variability and in some centers it's not very dis interdisciplinary it's the heart team and then the kidney team you know simultaneous heart kidneys let's be honest divert kidneys away from the kidney transplant waiting list which is enormous uh, a large much larger list and it's you know difficult to judge this renal failure in the context of cardiorenal syndrome and so in 2019 the AST the American Society of Transplant as a collaborative effort of both the kidney pancreas community of practice and the thoracic community of practice developed a group meeting and did pre-work to develop guidelines for interdisciplinary care and for kidney transplants in the context of simultaneous transplant to look at the current allocation scheme and develop a standardized care for interdisciplinary management. There's a lot of information in this paper, and I'll summarize it briefly by saying there's some sort of background information highlighting some of the issues of what is cardiorenal syndrome and what the pathophysiology is. And I will say that it's the best answer is it's multifactorial. There's endothelial dysfunction and, and neurohormonal activation. And many of us know that it just seems odd that you're recommending diuresis when the cranning is elevated. And it's sometimes hard to get that message across that, that getting the heart to function better is and with improvement of out cardiac output is really what the issue may be that developing a prognostic index is really complicated. And this is something that's been highlighted in the liver disease population. But, you know, understanding the representation of cranning and proteinuria, which may not be really good biomarkers in the context of, of heart failure with kidney disease. And our prior data is, is, is limited. It's based on some UNOS data where, you know, looking at lower EGFR thresholds, prior to um, heart kidney transplantation when you did a, when your EGFR is less than 37 and you do a combined transplant you gain 0.6 years which is statistically significant and I get that when you're the patient 0.6 years matters but it's not an astounding increase in, in, in long-term outcome and there is some ethics and fairness and allocation and there was an ethics review in terms of allocating the heart as a vital organ to those that are the sickest and then the kidney is based on you know geography and proximity and you know again when you take a, a kidney out of the pool you take it out of it for individuals that may need a kidney and so you're and you you know you may affect one recipient um, rather than three individuals with a heart and two different kidneys and certainly a, a recent paper by Westfall identified with that when that kidney goes out of the pool for simultaneous multi-organ, um, those on the waiting list do have worse outcomes. So there were a lot of themes and they had breakout sessions. And, and I'll summarize the findings, um, which are listed also in the paper that, you know, predictors of outcome of native kidney function are really difficult. And, you know, accurate measures of GFR in this population, the presence of established chronic kidney disease and acute kidney duration and reversibility. And if this sounds vaguely familiar, these are the same, you know, structural issues we have with, with liver disease. You know, a cardiorenal collaboration 
developed EGFR thresholds for transplant. And in this group, they identified that when the EGFR is greater than 45, there was no transplant necessary. And they suggested a safety net. So we created a safety net in liver transplant. And, and we did that, you know, where that was done in the allocation scheme to limit unnecessary kidney transplant. And so the notion is that if you did a single, if you just did a, a solo heart and a patient ended up on chronic dialysis or had a persistently reduced estimated GFR less than 20 for six weeks out to from day 30 to six, 365, they would be a priority on the waiting list. And that donor priority would be a KDPI of less than 20. So they would get like a really good kidney. You know, a lot of discussion about earlier evaluation, should we have more backup kidney recipients in place? So that if there's a, a change in the plan of simultaneous heart kidney. We don't lose both organs. There's need for risk adjustment. And, you know, they they recommended no recipient age cutoff, which was complicated in, in a discussion point about when to cut off who's who's too old. There was discussion in here of peri and, and postoperative management, including immunosuppressive strategies like induction and maintenance. How do you manage delayed graft function, calcineurin inhibitor reduction versus withdrawal? And there's a very nice algorithm that's provided in figure two that um, makes some suggestions about, you know, what's acute kidney injury, chronic kidney injury, and maybe kidney injury post-heart transplant that may may reverse. And again, I think another issue that's that was mentioned in this paper, but has always been difficult for me is the hemodynamic optimization post-simultaneous, uh, you know, the pressures to keep a patient dry and, and, and you know, just having poor renal perfusion has always been difficult. It's sort of the opposite of what you would do in a kidney transplant. And the last part of the paper shows consensus statements highlighting the above. So this is really a must read, I think, for anybody that's doing heart transplant or kidney transplant from a medical perspective. The accompanying editorial by Merrill Johnson and um, Mitra Nadim, you know, kind of concur with many of these questions and highlight the importance of the unanswered questions and needs, some of which need to be scientifically addressed. Now, it happens by coincidence that the next paper after this uh, paper in the journal is by Brian Shaw and colleagues at Duke. It's called The Need for Improvement in Simultaneous Heart Kidney Allocation, The Limitation of Pre-Transplant Glomerular Filtration Rate. And I don't have time to go into a lot of the specifics, but let me just say that it's an impactful paper and it analyzes SRTR data from 15 years or 14 years from 2003 to 17. And it compares the outcomes of simultaneous heart kidney with those with heart alone. Now that's 30,000 heart alone versus about 1100 of simultaneous heart kidney. And their cohort description is identified in figure one. The primary outcomes in this study were patient survival and secondary outcomes for things like delayed graft function, which means dialysis in the first week versus chronic dialysis, which I believe is more than six weeks. And so I'll cut to the chase by saying that simultaneous heart kidneys recipients tended to be older and male than the heart, heart alone. Diabetes was more common and uh, in the simultaneous. And interestingly, there was better heart function in simultaneous heart kidney as defined um, by pre-transplant assessment and actually less VAD usage, which I thought was interesting. Obviously, GFR was significantly lower in simultaneous heart kidney, only 39 mils per minute compared to 68 mils per minute on average for heart alone. And there were no other really major differences in donor demographics. For patients that were on dialysis and called dialysis-dependent prior to transplantation, 
Simultaneous heart kidney nearly doubled survival to 12.6 years from 7.1 with heart alone. But interestingly, for the entire cohort, when nobody was on, when you were not on dialysis, there was really no significant improvement in your survival, about 12.5 years overall. And when trying to assess based on pre-transplant GFR, there was a statistically significant difference in survival. It was an inverse survival, as you would imagine. The worse your GFR, the lower the GFR, you know, you, I mean, not inverse, it was proportional. You, you did worse. And I didn't say that quite right. Um, but when you got above a GFR of 40, things looked pretty decent about, and, and interestingly, even though that population seemed to do well in figure three, about 25% of simultaneous heart kidney transplants have been done in patients with a GFR of greater than 40. And so, um, you know, again, the notion of, you know, simultaneous heart kidney increasing in non-dialysis dependent cohorts is interesting. That was a novel finding. And clearly, if you were dialysis dependent and you get a simultaneous transplant, you actually do much, much better. So again, it doesn't really, and it doesn't really tell you you know, how to measure GFR and all that. But it does point out that, you know, coming up with some kind of recommendations as, as and, and it's interesting that this happened right around the time of the consensus conference, that that's, you know, the impact of GFR is quite significant. But we have these notions that, you know, a, a reduced and diminished GFR and, and granted eGFR of 40 is stage three chronic kidney disease. There is a measurable level, but these patients overall in this massive cohort seem to do decently. I will point out that the that delayed graft function rate was about 18, 20%. And I want to say that I thought that it was more frequent. Um, there were some issues in terms of the frequency of delayed graft function maybe being, I'm sorry, 26% of patients had DGF, 14% in the non-dialysis dependent compared to 38% in the dialysis dependent. Now, I don't know why that is. I don't know if there was some issue in terms of longer cold time when you're doing a simultaneous organ, which is what my guess is. I, I'm guessing that those, but I, but again, those it's all simultaneous. So it doesn't really, I couldn't really rationalize that. So I don't know if that's such a major uh, take-home point from this paper. Yeah, I mean, this really just, to me, sounds all familiar. <laughs> I mean, uh, from liver kidney. I mean, uh, the, the, the themes, the issues, the inability to predict or difficulty in predicting, unless you're on dialysis. I mean, that, that was very similar data in liver transplant. If you're on dialysis for a prolonged period of time, if every I, I remember there was a study, and I'm sure this could be replicated in heart, that for every day of dialysis, that a liver candidate was on, like had a significant increase in post-operative renal failure. So pre-operative renal failure on dialysis really predicts post-operative. And outside of that, though, there's probably not a lot of heart patients who are on dialysis going into... No, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest take-home I had is when I look at figure three and see that when your EGFR pre is is, is above 40, so sub-figures D and E and your outcomes are the same, no matter whether you get simultaneous or just a solitary heart, that's important to me. And then you switch to figure six that shows you the distribution of of chronic dialysis and, and, and who's, you know, and, and these EGFRs and who's getting these organs and to see that there's really quite a number getting simultaneous with that level of GFR, which seems a bit surprising to me. And I guess that's, you know, that those that need, you know, dialysis post 
Um, it just seems sort of odd. I mean, I, I'm not sure why. I, I guess we're, we're risk averse and these are difficult patients. But I think yeah. the paper does point out that we really and, and sort of coupled if you sit down with the consensus paper, Again, there's not a ton of consensus data. It was quite limited focus because we just don't have a ton of data. So nice um, combination of two papers. And I might not have represented the Shaw paper well in terms of the EGFR findings, but certainly above 40, it seemed like those patients were, were really okay. Yeah, I mean, not I, okay, but... I think the importance is, is that they're identifying that you should probably shouldn't do a combined kidney, heart kidney when your GFR is that high. And we, we recognize without policies, uh, transplant centers are going to do it. And that's similar to what happened with SLK. And I do like the consensus conference here uh, presenting a proposed criteria with, you know, for both acute and chronic kidney disease. And it looks it just looks very similar with the safety net to the liver kidney proposal. And I would encourage, uh, you know, taking these data and moving it toward a policy development so that there are rules to really get those organs to patients who really need them. So those are great papers. All right. So pathology. Very let me let me zip yes. through my favorite topic, the Banff allograph pathology criteria. Now I know many of you know that I go to the Banff meeting regularly and contribute as as a clinician, not as a pathologist. And so sometimes I get some dings. I get people sending me emails and saying comments at conferences. But this is an interesting paper by Jasper Kalaman, part of the the Leuven Belgium group with Martin Nasons and colleagues that examined the prognostic features of the BAMF solid organ transplant for kidney uh, pathology criteria for antibody-mediated rejection, and they look at it over the changes in the criteria over time uh, and demonstrate some concerns about the more recent criteria, which were changed in 17. So let me just say that from 2001, where it was like neutrophils coming in the kidney and fibrinoid necrosis, we got more advanced in 03 to recognizing C4D deposition in peritubular capillaries as being really an important feature of, of complement activation. And so by 2013, recognizing that this was a serious complication, acute active antibody media rejection was, was classified by three criteria, three components that you needed morphologic changes of injury, which include, included acute tubular necrosis, evidence of antibody interaction with the endothelium, which is recognized by C4D staining, and then the serologic detection of donor-specific antibody. Now, there were some changes made in 2017, and I actually pulled them up. It's, you know, there's so many footnotes, and I have to admit that I actually reviewed, you know, I was a co-author, but um, some of the considerable changes that were made over the years, and like in 2013, was the use of gene, gene transcripts um, for endothelial injury in 2013. Um, and that was actually expanded in 2017 so that you could have gene transcripts associated with these with antibody-mediated injury as a substitute for the absence of DSA along with the absence of C4D staining and, and DSA-negative uh, cases because it became clear that you could have a DSA-negative uh, case of antibody rejection. And likewise, we recognize that C4D negativity could also occur, especially when there's significant uh, vascular inflammation. So this study wanted to point out that all these changes may not be good for the field. Um, and in particular, they looked at their entire center data 
for about 14 year, uh, 13 years with almost 1,000 patients and almost 4,000 biopsies. Now, the vast majority of their biopsies, 2,700, were surveillance biopsies, not for-cause biopsies. A minority at 850 were indication biopsies for changes in GFR and proteinuria. And they were reviewed by a single pathologist using BAMF criteria from 01, 2013, and 2017. And so they classified these biopsies and a great figure is figure one. And I tell you that that's going to be in one of my talks, I think, coming up. They also had a validation cohort of another, I don't know, 800 and something biopsies from Lyon, France, which was a three month and a 12 month surveillance biopsy cohort. And that was, I believe, Olivier Thonat who did those, who had, who contributed and was a co-author and they retrospectively analyzed for HLA DSA with high resolution typing. Interestingly, in this cohort, this entire cohort, only about 5% developed de novo DSA, um, and delayed graft function was not extremely common. Again, this is a very homogenous patient population because it's European ancestry. And the vast majority, like 95% of these individuals were deceased donor. So uh, what I'll point to is this figure one where they show the initial classification using BAMF criteria 01 and how those how that diagnostic criteria changes when you move to 13 and to 17. And importantly, they point out that in 2013, we had this category called suspicious for antibody meter rejection. So of those three components of a diagnosis, if you had two, you would be called suspicious for AMR. And in 2017, we got rid of the suspicious category. And there were actually differences over time. But, you know, again, biopsies that were, you know, consistent with antibody rejection, there were more when they went from 01 to 13. And then those numbers fluctuated and, and stayed pretty much the same. And a few went into the 2017 category. So why does this matter? Well, they, they also calculated the graph failure rates based on these biopsies. And I'm not, I can't remember which biopsy they used or if it was a summary of all. I think it was everybody. And so the hazard ratio for graph failure using 2013 criteria was 3.87 compared to the, the diagnosis in 2001, but it was lower when you use the 2017 criteria, it was less predictive of graft outcome. And they looked at the outcomes based on other factors. But again, note that they the loss of this suspicious category occurred. And so that there was less detection of, I guess their, their feeling was it was more of a compressed criteria. So there were individuals with isolated peritubular caporalitis who were considered non-antibody meter rejection. Uh, and so it was less prognostic. So it's a limited study from the perspective of a single center and a single pathologist, and it's not a high-risk patient population from immune reactivity. But on the other hand, I would say this is an incredibly well-defined and annotated cohort, and it was really an elegant dem demonstration of the impact of changing diagnostic criteria over time. The accompanying editorial was by Mike Mengel, and guess who? Me. So I think our argument and concern was, you know, is, BAMF is the BAMF criteria diagnostic or prognostic? And I would argue that it's really diagnostic. And indeed, the goal of the 2013 meeting was really to avoid underdiagnosis, and so having suspicious and and expanding it uh, quite a bit was was the goal. And again, you know, there is still concern that we're not communicating this well to the community. For example, the diagnostic accuracy using chronic active antibody immune rejection, particularly in 2019, 
we do, you know, it's it's complicated and whether there's severe activity with mild chronicity or mild activity versus severe chronicity are all kind of lumped together in chronic active antibody media rejection. So I think the notion, um, you know, that what we you could argue that, you know, in the absence of effective treatment, you know, using an outcome of graph failure is really not a valid reference point for doing di the diagnostic accuracy for prognosis that, you know, there were all kinds of therapies used and it may not have had the, the relative impact. And also the issues were that a lot of the outcomes changed over time were based on donor specific antibody detection and microcirculation changes and not C4D changes, which was really the basis of the 2013 criteria and the expansion. Because in 2013, we took into account whether you used immunofluorescence or immunohistochemistry and we dropped the thresholds were intentionally dropped to be quite sensitive. So what should I say for the rest of you all out there? You know, diagnosing antibody meter rejection is, com is complicated and there's really sort of a lack of a gold standard. I mean, I think we have the best that there's out there and maybe this inclusion of molecular uh, diagnostics would really help us. But certainly there's issues there where you find C4D negative and DSA negative with um, microvascular inflammation and you're sort of getting these transcripts back saying, oh, it's antibody. And it's a little bit of a struggle, you know, to get through that mentally. But I think the best, you know, path forward as we highlight in the editorials to shift the classification from a probabilistic approach to really a diagnostic approach and risk stratification, which is probably the best that we can do right now. Okay, great. When are the next Banff changes coming? Like, well, we were so we were we were supposed to actually meet in Banff, Canada this year, but because of COVID and the limitations of travel, we won't be doing that. So normally it meets in the odd year. So I'm not sure if we're going to change. You know, I'll be yeah. I'll, I'll have trouble remembering because now that it's on an even year. It'll be tough. But I think certainly, you know, this will be an ongoing discussion. There's several things that are always ongoing discussion and, and, and all the solid organs are now represented in, in different breakouts. So this was the focus on the kidney criteria, which, of course, you know, kidney trumps. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Sorry, John. Well, good, good. Yeah, good segue to uh, the last two papers, which I'm going to try to summarize in two or three minutes uh, so we can finish up here. I'll do the best I can. So. First paper. So these are, I think the COVID-19 papers now that are being published are becoming more nuanced and kind of trying to dive into certain specific issues like, like outcomes and socioeconomic issues and, you know, real kind of specific things outside of, you know, kind of the initial you know, presentation and disease in this population. So, that, that's what these two papers really represent, which is um, the first one is from the Hopkins group. And this was uh, a direct comparison across the Hopkins system of their solid organ transplant patients who were admitted to the hospital compared to essentially a very large cohort of non-solid organ transplant patients. And really just to comparing their hospital length of stay and inpatient mortality using a competing risks regression. And this was from the time period of March through August of last year. So just take that with a grain of salt that I, I think things are probably even better now, particularly now, but even maybe toward the end of last year where uh, patients were doing better, I think from 
um, better management and and identifying certain treatments like corticosteroids, remdesivir that were, were improving outcomes. The reason they did this study was mainly because there's been some mixed data on the solid organ transplant population and their outcomes. Some have shown high mortality, like 20%, and others have shown similar mortality, but there really hasn't been a direct comparison to a non-solid organ transplant population. And in a nutshell, they had 45 solid organ transplant recipients admitted across their system, and they compared that to a very large number, 2,427 non-SOT patients. And they looked at the WHO COVID-19 severity score, comparing between the groups and, and their outcomes. And uh, of course, the solid organ transplant recipients were more likely to have comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, peripheral vascular disease. Despite that, there was no significant difference between the two groups, the SOT and the non-SOT, in illness severity score, length of stay, or mortality. Um, so actually, they fared, even though their level of illness and comorbidities were higher, their outcomes were similar to a non-solid organ transplant population, which was at Hopkins, a large, very diverse general population. And the other interesting thing is, despite this higher risk profile, the, the solid organ transplant recipients had actually a faster improvement in their disease severity than the non-solid organ transplants. So, you know, what does this basically say is that the findings show that solid organ transplant patients, and it, again, this is Hopkins, the Hopkins system, so may not be as generalizable, but in general, they do pretty well um, compared to non-solid organ transplant patients. And in fact, there's some indication that they may, may do better. Um, now, again, there's all sorts of potential biases in that. Um, and one of the things is that a higher percentage of the solid organ transplant patients receive tocilizumab than the non-solid organ. And so that that could potentially be a variable here that improved their mortality, although they really couldn't, you know, tell the uh, or, or, or evaluate that just because of the numbers. Um, the other thing that they suggested potentially is that immunosuppression may dampen the inflammatory response and lead to, um, you know, improved outcomes. Um, I think this is just a good thing to know, particularly for when patients are so scared of getting COVID. I think nowadays it's pretty uncommon anyway to the numbers of hospitalized patients are going down. I don't, wouldn't say it's reassuring. I would say it's not like this dramatic difference that we all expected that the organ transplant patients would be such higher mortality because of their risks and immunosuppression. So I think that was that's a very helpful uh, cohort study um, to add to the body of literature. Um, and then the last paper is um, from Jesse Schold's uh, group at Cleveland Clinic and, and some authors from Columbia. And this one was not too surprising. The findings were not too surprising that um, they looked at COVID-19 mortality among kidney transplant candidates. So those waiting for transplant um, uh, on dialysis and looked at their mortality, the ones who died, and looked at some of the factors that were associated with death in patients waiting for kidney transplantation. And essentially, they found pretty typical factors that uh, increase someone's likelihood of dying from COVID-19, which is advanced age, males, higher BMI, diabetes, 
But independent of that, they looked at several socioeconomic factors such as race. Uh, blacks and Hispanics had significantly higher mortality related to whites. Uh, patients with lower educational um, attainment, like high school or less, Medicaid insurance, residents in the most distressed neighborhoods. And um, the, the, so this goes along with a, a, very, a much higher likelihood of socioeconomic uh, issues of leading to a higher risk of dying uh, from COVID. And we know that this is how it is in the general population, um, but this was specifically in a dialysis population. And it clearly shows um, the unfortunate discrepancies in in um, in uh, outcomes in whether depending on your race or your socioeconomic status. I'm not sure how much this changes or sort of is impactful other than this is a, certainly a population that really needs to be targeted for vaccination and protection against COVID-19 because of their, their risks and their increased mortality. Um, that's kind of what the author sort of ended with saying that these are, are really should be a target population. If we're really going to reduce mortality even further, the kidney transplant population within these groups would be very high uh, target for those measures. So again, not I think not too surprising that they found this, um, but certainly, and I'm sure they would probably find this in, in liver transplantation and other organ, but I know kidney transplant is a, I think more of a, or, or patients awaiting a kidney transplant, there's there's more patients from non-white population who are waiting. So very relevant. And I did not finish that in three minutes, but I tried. <laughs> I think you did a great job. And um, and we got a lot of papers done this week. Yes, yes. Well, great. So I think we'll end it. Um, and uh, we look forward to the August podcast. Um, Remember, tweet out if you like the podcast um, on any type of tweet or social media. And Mike, thank you for joining us uh, thank today. You. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Us too. Okay, thank you, everybody. Take care. Take care. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's AMJ transplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 